Hey everyone, welcome to Smart Guy, Dumb Guy. Today our theme song, False State by Trailer Swift, is now available. So go support our good friends and give it a listen. Tony Tancredi of Trailer Swift, he was on the show, the first episode of season two. There's going to be a link in the notes. We love it. I hope you love it. Go ahead and listen to it. If this is your first time listening to Smart Guy, Dumb Guy, I am your host and dumb guy, Christian Serge. And always with us is our co-host, Smart guy, Dr. Johnny Morrison. That's right. For the next 23 minutes or so, we're going to have a conversation about current events, culture, and politics from both sides of the intellectual spectrum. How's that doctor thing coming, Johnny? Uh, it's good, man. Uh, I'm not technically a doctor yet, just so for everybody who's listening, I am uh, I am what they refer to as ABD, all but dissertation. Um, but I should be done with my dissertation Writing it, I should be done this month or next, and then defend hopefully April or May, um, and be done in June. So I got a call from someone today, and I may or may not have heard that you have the first three or four chapters of your dissertation done. That's right. Yeah, I have. I have four done. Um, I have four done. They've I get done in the sense that like my supervisor has read them. Who's like my? You have a doctoral supervisor who oversees your project. They've read them reviewed them, said my work is good. I finished writing them, obviously. Um, I'm working on chapter five now, which is the final chapter of the dissertation. I can't wait to read it. Actually, that's so not true. <laughs> I was like, it's not going to be that like thrilling of a read. <laughs> like, I love to read your dissertation, said no one ever. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, I think I, I think of myself as a good writer, but like, it's you academic are. and dry. So you just got to know that like going into it, um, but yeah, I've, I'm proud of it so far and you know, we'll see what happens. Most likely what will happen is it'll get published in like a, they publish dissertations. It'll get put on the school library shelf where they put dissertations. Huh. And then that's, that's kind of the end of it. That's where it'll live. Uh, and that's how you get your doctorate. You, you publish a thing that sits on a school library and may or may not ever <laughs> go anywhere. <laughs> I don't know if I'll ever read it, but I do know one thing. If I did read it, I'd have to have like Webster's Dictionary, Cambridge Dictionary, Oxford, and it would take me like six months because all the big words <laughs> that dissertations have, I would just have to look the whole thing up. That's not because you're dumb, though. That's because uh, jargon is the favorite <laughs> The favorite speak of academics is to use a lot of their own jargon that you would never use in any other context. Ah. Well, speaking of a lot of jargon... Uh, the person that I talked to today and, uh, was a listener. She let me know that she was not happy with uh -oh. some of the things that I've been doing on the show. And this person was your mom. Yeah, I, <laughs> I was going to ask you. I was like, I think the only person <laughs> that's read four chapters of my dissertation is my co-pastor and my mom. That's it. So Let me tell you, she gave it to me. She was like, I listened to your podcast today, Christian, and I liked it. Uh, you know, surprisingly, I'm like, surprisingly, tell me, tell me more. And she's like, well, you know what? I have a problem with you. And this is getting in the way of our relationship. Well, uh, she didn't no. say that exactly. That wasn't a quote from her, but I could tell it was getting in the way of our relationship. <laughs> so she was letting me have, she's like, last week you lumped people in to white evangelicals and you lumping people in everywhere else. And you're lumping people in everywhere else. You're really bad at that. I'm like, oh, uh, I'm so sorry, uh, Jane Ann. Now, I, I want everyone to know that she is one of the smartest people on the planet. 
she uh, took a company from the very start to the very finish, uh, raised it up to be a very super successful company, uh, sold it, and does all kinds of life coaching. Uh, I meet with her often, and I really uh, love Johnny's mom. I love Jane Ann, and I think that she's a, a wonderful person. She's an author. She's got a book called The Audit Principle, and um, whether you like the title or not, it's actually a really, really good book. It is good. Um, she's gonna. She'll be pumped that you just uh, pumped her book a little bit, and uh, also her. <laughs> we, I was gonna ask you just what she gave you. Should about more specifically, but so again, she said, Christian, you lumped people in with white evangelicals, and I think that's bad because I am, I'm. I don't really consider myself evangelical, but I took offense to that. And so as we talked, we kind of talked through it, and there was a couple of things that I really want everyone to know on the show, and I want mm. the listeners to know. You know, we get to spend a few minutes together, Johnny and I, we get to spend a few minutes to talk about these subjects. And, you know, I do consider myself the dumb guy. I say dumb stuff and I I think of things in a very simple way. And sometimes that's going to offend people. And when you listen to the show, this these 20 minutes, they don't make up who Christian Surge is as a person. So, but I do want to talk to people. I want to talk about these subjects. So if you call me up and you're like, Christian, I'm super pissed. My first response is most likely going to be, why? Let's talk about it. Because I have a deeper discussion in me. But mm-hmm. if you call me up, and this is not what Jane Ann did. Like I had another listener call me up and just start uh, giving me kind of like, well, how would you feel if California, you know, I just assumed everybody was a pedophile and all this stuff. And I was like, well... I told them to go to hell. I said, unfollow me, go to hell. I don't want to talk to you. And they're like, well, fine. You don't even want to have a conversation. Not like your podcast. And I was like, oh, you know what? You're right. Hold on. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to say go to hell. Let's talk about it. So if you, like I make mistakes, people. So you know what? This doesn't represent the full person of Christian Surge. That's right. And I told that to your mom and, and uh, we talked a lot about that and it was a really healthy conversation. And I shouldn't. I should not lump the 37% of Christians who still believe in QAnon and then say that represents all of Christianity. So that was definitely wrong and I should be better at that. So I'm learning. Hmm. So thank you, Jane Ann, for calling me and just, you know, socking it to me. And thanks for listening. Yeah, thanks, Mom. I don't, I think it's been a long time since we've talked about this, but like, I think to the point that you just made, like that was always a bit of the hope of the show is that it would not be people who are perfect having perfect conversations about something, but it would be like an evolving, changing, growing conversation that is hopefully shaping us and making us better people as we engage in these issues, as we become more aware, as we like talk to people who challenge us. And so just your willingness to own that and say some of those things, I think is actually proof that kind of working hopefully like hopefully that's the dynamic that we want to have happen here well i hope so and and like you again you just you say things right and i go yeah yeah that's the that's what we want the show to be so everyone don't listen to the dumb guy or if you do and you get offended i'm happy to talk to you but i don't know i'm gonna have that much of an intelligent conversation (laughs) you will for you will for sure you're selling yourself real short there I'll try. I'll try, everyone. So anyway, thanks for joining us for the show. It's really just fun to do this show. So thanks for being here. So before we dive into today's two larger conversations, I wanted to provide just a bit of an update on the conversation that we had last week in light of the coup in Myanmar and some of the developments that have happened. So there's been some things that are kind of amazing and some things that are amazingly terrifying. On the one hand, 
there has been these massive pro-democracy protests all throughout mm. Myanmar, which is crazy because, like, this is a military dictatorship. You could suffer immensely for being a, a pro-democracy protest walking in the streets. I, I, I saw some stat that was like two-thirds of civil employees walked off of jobs in protest of the government. So people are losing substantially. And like Aung San Suu Kyi, you know, who's a kind of complicated figure, but she's like the the representative of democracy in Myanmar. She's, you know, spent most of her life under house arrest. So it's like you have a wow. long history and example of people who have suffered here. So you have these amazing protests that are happening. And then to, to prove the point of the uh, consequence that you can suffer, the military dictatorship is locking up tons and tons of pro-democracy protesters. And in order to make room for those protesters in prison, they released 3,000 violent criminals, just released them from prison and gave them the mandate of showing up at protests and roughing up pro protesters. What? Which is a tactic that Myanmar's military has used in the past. I don't even believe that. Yeah, so wild, right? I mean, and, and Myanmar's not alone. Other nations and countries have done the same kind of thing. I mean, shit, America has done the same kind of thing in the past. Uh, That's like the worst kind of Hollywood movies. Yeah, totally, right? It's like, have you seen, this is like an old reference, have you seen Newsies? Yeah. When, when the newsboys are protesting and all of a sudden, the, like the gang shows up to enforce, uh -huh. it's, it's yeah. exactly that. Except for this one has guns and they're yeah, not just billy clubs. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, I'm uh, I I hope that that doesn't happen here ever anytime <laughs> soon. Yeah, you know, just a thing as we you know as we continue to talk about America or foreign policy or whatever it is that we're talking on the show, like the things that are happening in Myanmar are important to not forget about. Yeah. And so just to provide a little update, people can be paying attention to what's going on there, finding out how to support pro-democracy movements, non-violent, especially pro-democracy movements in places like Myanmar, um, and keep it on your radar. Well, I think we can learn from the past and learn from the present as well. Like we can learn what's, we don't have to look back very far, even just mm. sometimes days for uh, what uh, ty tyranny looks like, what authoritarianism looks like, what communism looks like. And so when we talk about left and right, Republican and Democrat and all things politics, we can really hopefully look back just around us, past the end of our noses and take kind of note of what's happening and go, we, we should probably try to avoid these kind of things in the future. Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. I wanted to talk about the debacle in Texas, and there's just so many opinions around and so many things that are going on. Uh, the article that I read today uh, was from The Atlantic. It's called Freezing Cold and Burning Mad in Texas. And it's by a guy by the name of Andrew Exelman. Ironically, or maybe it's more fortuitously, from 2015 to 2017, he was the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for the Middle East Policy. Mm. So the guy has some you know, information. He knows what uh, policy is. He knows uh, what news is. This is an opinion piece. So it is his opinion on what's going on, but it does have a few little facts that you can kind of glean from. And the article I thought was interesting because it talks about, you know, I, I have family in Texas and Dallas right now. They have rolling blackouts. They can't get their house heated up to mm -hmm. uh, past 62 degrees. And that's the warmest it's ever been. At night, it typically drops down below 40. And if you've ever slept in, you know, 
uh, under 40 degrees, it, it's freezing, right? It, it feels mm-hmm. really, really cold. And it, of course, in your house, in your warm house. So uh, their pool's frozen. Who knows how many pipes are frozen? Um, you know, they, they're experiencing a lot of what Texans are experiencing, the idea that houses aren't insulated that well and, uh, you know, the power. So when we talk about the power, I was doing a little bit of reading and I didn't know this, but Texas is one of the largest or largest conglomerates of solar and wind power. And mm-hmm. of course, there has been a lot of conservatives saying, you know, I told you, you know, renewable energies won't work because when it got cold, the, you know, the windmills froze up and all that stuff. Well, the, the crazy thing is, is that the reason they're having a power uh, problem is because their natural gas pipeline froze and can't supply enough fossil fuel powered electricity to generate for Texas. And so mm-hmm. it's a mess. It's complicated. It's not just conservatives are right or, or Democrats are right or solar or natural gas. Although it's kind of ironic that the, the state that is essentially the Saudi Arabia of the United States can't provide mm-hmm. enough fossil fuel to power their country when it gets too cold. Mm-hmm. But what I really wanted to talk about was this idea of their state governor, Greg Abbott. And how he, he has a long history of not showing up to anything but conservative politics, like television shows and, and news shows, because he doesn't want to be asked the hard questions. And then he has also has a history of saying, no, it's the local responsibility. When the local governors say, oh, this is bad, he overrules it. And then when everybody starts dying in the pandemic, he's like, oh, it's your fault. So he has this idea of hmm. performing the right motions to save face but not really governing. And so the mm-hmm. question I have today in, the, in this for everyone is, what does performance governing look like in our lives? Meaning, mm. how many times do we do the right motions like Greg Abbott and we don't really make a change? We don't really support a cause or we don't really, mm. we just post something on social or we argue with somebody or we bring up some conspiracy theory, but we don't really make that change. What does performance governing look like in our lives? Mm. Well, that's a good question. I I was not expecting you to take the questions so uh, like personal, like to mm-hmm. each individual one of us. Like that's a fascinating way to think about it. Like on like as I just reflect on it on both sides. Like right, like I think theater and performance has really taken over most American politics. Like mm-hmm. not to say that people at their base don't want to govern, but I do think that in a large way politics have become a theater and I, I don't to to my mom who's listening i don't mean to be more conser- <laughs> critical of conservatives but from my vantage point it feels that's especially true of, of conservatives um but i actually i'm gonna roll that back because i sometimes when i look at nancy pelosi and chuck schumer it feels like it's theater to me too so it's not that it's not that much more like sometimes it feels like you're just doing this because you you want votes the the way you perform equates to more votes equates to a riled up base equates to whatever and so that's and it equates to how you're perceived in the media and all of it seems a bit like performative and theatrical and i think then that that trickles down or trickles back up whichever way you want to say in that our social media engagement with policies that matter are kind of the way we like protest online all feels a bit performative. Like what we're mm. intending to do is to be seen as having the right gestures. Like I was, I was talking to somebody this week and this is a bit different, but I would not be surprised if 
all the major evangelical churches today that are criticized as not being affirming, as soon as the majority of their population switch to being affirming, which I think will happen in America just as people become more accustomed to like, and just their imaginations are reshaped into like a more like queer positive perspective that all of a sudden all those major evangelical churches will also change to being affirming churches because oh, affirming more to queer or LGBTQ that yeah because they're more interested in being large and around than they are in convictions that they may or may not hold right that which is all just feels performative so so that's a big that's a big generalization that you just made and that, it's, that totally. surprises me totally. that surprises me totally do you hear that mom yeah I make them too I she knows that she knows that um, it is a big generalization yeah I think that even if there is a small amount of truth, I think that it is truth. If we're talking about the evangelical church, I think we were talking, you know, the question was, how does it apply in our own lives? And yeah. I guess you're talking about it in a more, bi a, a bigger way that kind of illustrates the point. If I, I'm, let me just repeat this back to you. It illustrates the point that there is a level of performance in just about mm -hmm. every stage of life, right, yeah. left, church business governance governors totally that's exactly what i was trying to say it's like like even to that point like i consider myself still pretty much an evangelical maybe a post-evangelical because of my positions but like that's my camp right yeah and i so i think we're pretty deeply performative people i think conservatives are pretty deeply performative i think liberals are pretty deeply performative i think we saw it with businesses that really quickly adapted to take on black lives matter uh slogans and agendas to be like we're performative I, you saw the same thing like with Pride and when Pride blew up, like you'd see businesses start to yeah. fly gay flags. And it was almost like if you didn't perform that way, you would be perceived negatively and then there would be like a financial cost. And so then you're always wondering like, are we, ex is, are we exploiting something in order to make money and then therefore performing or is it actually happening? So yeah, exactly what you just said. In all those places, it feels like we're more performative sometimes than we are conviction driven. You know, empathy and exploitation have a very thin line between the two. And mm. it's really hard to distinguish it in these times. Mm, that's, a, that's a good statement. It's really hard. I think it's a complicated matter because I'll have an argument and it's legitimately one side is saying that's exploitation. One side is saying that's lack of empathy. And you sit mm -hmm. there and you argue and you argue and argue about it. Wow. I don't know what it looks like in my life. I hope that I can see that line between empathy and exploitation. Mm. Yeah. I wonder, this is my, this is my, we say this a lot on this show, but I, I wonder if the primary thing that stops something from being exploitation and keeps it in the realm of empathy is that it is always grounded in the people that you are talking about. And, mm. and that you don't take on a representative role for that people group because then it feels like it's exploitative. Like it's like a white dude, if I am all of a sudden representing the grievances and the wounds and the hurts of a community without actually being, first of all, deeply embedded in that community and deeply rooted there, then that feels exploitative. Like I'm using it for my own agenda and my own purposes. But if it's happening in relationship, then I'm not, I'm not wielding the quote unquote other for some other purpose, right? I'm actually like conversing and dialoguing with. I'm not going to lie. You kind of lost me. Well, at Missio where I pastor, we had lots of conversations around COVID and 
uh, as any church did, right? And lots of churches have responded to COVID concerns differently. And Missio has still chosen a pretty like safe approach, like where we're doing very in- limited in-person gatherings in a space that can hold significantly more people than it than it can. And the reason, the primary reason that we were motivated to do that is because we wanted church to be a safe place for those with like um, immunocompromised or immunodeficient disorders that they could also come and worship. So everybody could get a chance to worship, whether you mm. felt like COVID was stupid or you were genuinely did, like genuinely afraid of what COVID could do to your body. We wanted yeah. everybody to be able to come and worship in a way that was safe and protective. Huh. Now that could have been actually very easily exploited, especially if, Nobody who was immunocompromised was shaping the decisions around how we protected people who were immunocompromised. Sure. And so we, I didn't make those decisions. We had our team was formed by lay people in the community, people who were immunocompromised, um, people who were like experts in the field, and those that was the kind of like decision making apparatus so that no one was being othered. And then we have a leadership team of people who hold different perspectives who are also speaking into the issue. So it's like. You, that way you can't other or separate yourself from sure. like another perspective or use them in order to achieve some kind of purpose or agenda. You just hit the mic. I did. Yeah, you're going you're gonna to get a bump there. <laughs> it's great. I like that. It's very passionate. That makes a lot of sense to me. And I appreciate that. That We need more people like that out there uh, that will make decisions. See, that's the part, hard part. So now I'm going to name, I think that's more empathy. And some people might say that's exploitation. I don't know how. And if you want to talk to me, go ahead, call and talk to me. Just don't call me an asshole because I'm going to call you an <laughs> asshole back. <laughs> okay, is everyone? There, if, if somebody wants to talk, is there a way for them to send an email or uh, should they send an Instagram message? What should they do if they want to, if they want to get mad at us? You can reach out on Instagram. You can DM us, uh, our Instagram account, smartguydumbguy, or you can email info at smartguydumbguy.com. Perfect, perfect. I would love to chat with you about empathy and being grounded in and with people. So and I don't know, me. I don't know if I'd love to talk to you, but I will try. No, I would love to talk to you too. <laughs> I would love to talk to you too. Well, speaking of compromised teenager, compromised people, compromised young people, we're going to talk a little bit about China's millennials today. Yes. So moving in in a different direction, I guess this is two weeks in a row where I've brought something up that is more foreign policy related. Um, This is an article from Unheard, which Unheard, we've talked about on the show before. It's a a British publication. It's all think pieces or opinion pieces. Um, Generally pretty smart, uh, pretty interesting. This piece is great, um, and it focuses on the, the kind of experience that millennials in China are having. And, and the fascinating thing about this piece is that the experience they're having is very similar to the experience that millennials are having in the United States, hmm. meaning their job market is really tough. Uh, education cost is incredibly high. Cost of living is incredibly high. And so the rise that China has experienced in moving to a more free market and open market system while still maintaining like you know government control has lifted so many people out of like poverty has skyrocketed um, wages but millennials like millennials in the United States are kind of being left behind in that spot and it's leading to a kind of a cultural dissonance and so the, the question that the article is asking is basically will millennials in China do the same thing that millennials in the United States have done which is sort of like I mean we could argue if this is true or not but sort of give up on it and 
begin to revolt on it and do things like Occupy Wall Street. Mm. Um, will there be a revolt there? And then that led me to another question, maybe which is a more important answer first, which is about how we view China, which is like if, if millennials in China are having a very similar economic and emotional experience that millennials in the United States are having, have the West and China become more and more similar and in fact, we are actually much more similar places than we often have are led to believe because we are shaped by the market more than we are by political ideology or political systems. So we actually much more similar places than we give uh, ourselves credit for. I, I think you bring up a couple of really good points. I think this is a uh, both fascinating and unfascinating article because it feels so far away for me. Hmm. And I, I can only imagine some people are, are going to be like, that's so insensitive. But you know, you think about, like I've been to 41 countries, I've worked in 30 of them, uh, not as a tourist, like I've worked in them. And so sometimes when you think like, oh, it's just, it's so far away, it doesn't really affect me. But when you brought up the idea that are we more similar because the markets are the same, not politics or not ways of thinking, I believe mm -hmm. it's, the markets have brought us together, this world economy. Are they going to rebel? I kind of hope so. Yeah. I kind of yeah, hope Have so. you worked in China? Have you been to China? Yes. I've worked in China, but I didn't, I, I, I've worked in China uh, officially in the uh, British part in Hong Kong, and I've unofficially worked in a few other places. Okay. <laughs> Very cryptic. Yes. Yeah, it's, I, I, it, it's an interesting, it kind of reminds me of some of the questions that you've asked over the last couple of weeks, maybe even last week's episode or the episode before where we talked about this, the way social media commodifies. Mm, yeah. And it's a similar kind of question, which is, does the market commodify and, and, and the global market commodify in such a way that that actually overcomes cultural distinctions, political distinctions, ideological distinctions, so that the experience we're having is really similar because the market has done something very similar to us mm. at like a psychological level, right? Which in some ways we know that's true. Hong Kong and New York and London are kind of more like each other mm -hmm. than they are like the more rural parts of their own country, right? Like sure. New York is more like London than New York is like um, Peoria, Illinois. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> totally. And so like, are we all, so if you're, if you're in the market, are you just being shaped into the same kind of people? Which then, you know, this is just like a set of interesting questions. Like, all of the all of the arguments that China is so different than us, and w the way that we other China so dramatically right. starts to kind of fall apart. You're like, no, no, we're actually way closer than we think. That's a really good point, especially with all the violence with Asian Americans right now that's being highlighted in the news. Most likely, has always been happening, and then yeah. probably happening more that there's been this. Uh, uh, misinterpretation of the pandemic and where the virus came from. So I, I, everywhere I've been, I've learned many, many lessons, but one of them is that we are pretty much all the same and want the same things. Mm -hmm. And some of us are luckier than others. And some of us have been, you know, given much more luck. I heard uh, today someone say that we suffer the consequences of the fourth generation behind us and if you think about that it's mm. a really good advice right like 
you know, my great grandfather uh, moved uh, to the United States and then down in through Mexico, and we stayed here. And so I've been affected and suffered or enjoyed the consequences of their just sheer flat out courage to, you know, leave everything mm. behind in search of a better place, something I'll. I have not known in that way. So mm -hmm. are we all the same? Are we more shaped by the market? I don't know. I would think so. And, you know, I, it does seem like a, a long, a far away place, but it's not. Yeah. What do you think? Um, I think that's really true. I love what you just said. Do you think that, um, especially since you've been there, but even from that conversation, then do you think that millennial, like the Chinese millennials or even Chinese gen, um, Gen Z will revolt and push back, or do you think that it's not enough the same yet? That there's still some more. Yeah, I think that's a good question. I think there's always a breaking point. A good friend of mine, his name is Luis. He came from Venezuela uh, when it turned communist, and you know he saw, or sorry, authoritarianism and uh, tyranny and dictatorship. He saw that convergence, and he was part of a crew that you know, disagreed with it and was part of some revolts, but mm. some, it takes a lot and it takes a lot of people to affect a lot of people, I guess. So mm -hmm. I don't know. That's a, that's a really hard question. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because you see it in Hong Kong, right? Like you've had massive pro-democracy yeah. movements in Hong Kong as uh, China has sort of like infringed on Hong Kong's weird status mm -hmm. as like a democratically yep. sort like a pseudo democratically elected government within mm -hmm. China. And you've not necessarily seen a lot of the same kinds of movements in China because so much of it has been censored. Like I mean American media can be censored in a lot of ways too, but Chinese media is censored in a whole other way where like people don't even know about the like the red square. Um, and so that was I was I was talking about this with somebody else earlier. Um, and like and then my wife made this point like it feels so difficult for that to happen yet because th there is this lack of communication, this mm -hmm. lack of access still. And so there's like, there's a, there's, there, it, she was like, there needs to be some kind of like meeting moment where you're like, yes, you the dissonance is starting to rise. The effect of the market is like crushing people in a new kind of way, but they're still misinformed. And so like, there's some makeup still needs to be there, which makes sense to me. I, you know, like that, that would, you need something else to spur it, a spark. Oh, for sure. For sure. Last words. Uh, last words. Don't perform. Get embedded, rooted <laughs> with others. Uh, and uh, watch out how you're shaped by the, the markets of the world around you, that it commodifies us and limits us and shrinks us. And I think actually to the point before, commodification stops us from being empathetic. Uh, yes. It sucks us up into something cheap and shallow and not connected to one another. Yes. Yes. That is such good advice. Say that again. Please, <laughs> please, please. Yeah. We need to watch out how we're being commodified by the markets around us and by our consumption because commodification stops us from being empathetic. It stops us from connecting to one another. Uh, there's one writer I really like who talks about how all small cultures have been devoured by one large pop culture. And that those little small cultures actually helped curate 
connection and empathy and embeddedness in life with one another. And they all got devoured by MTV. And now there's just one shitty plastic pop culture that unites China and America and England and everything else in between called, you know, buy dumb stuff. Hmm. (laughs) Well, that ends our episode of Smart Guy, Dumb Guy. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks. What you want, I can't give it to you. False state is popping my mind. What you want, I can't give it to you. Your false state, your false state. You have been listening to a smart guy and a dumb guy production, a podcast exploring culture, current events, and politics from both sides of the intellectual spectrum. See you next time.